The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold. All right. Hello, everybody in the land of blue and gold. Today, I have a very special two-interview show as we kick off the presidential campaign season on UCI Conversations. My first interview is with UCI election law professor Rick Hassan, who will be offering his perspectives. And my second guest will be Orange County Registrar of Voters Neil Kelly, who will give us the official word on how to vote. Election Day is quickly coming up on Tuesday, November 3rd, but this year, because of COVID-19, there are more ways to vote than usual, so listen up. Now let's kick off right now with UCI election law professor Rick Hassan. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Professor of Law and Political Science, Richard Hassan. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation. With our national presidential election coming up, I was directed to Professor Hassan as the go-to person at UCI to talk about the election. When I Googled the professor, I was bowled over with all his activities, books, articles, op-eds, media interviews, New York Times, PBS, Harvard and Stanford Law Review, webcasts, the list goes on and on. And his most recent book published this year is Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. He was also recently named as CNN election law analyst through the end of this election cycle, meaning if you watch CNN, you will be seeing him probably a lot. So welcome, Professor Hassan. It's great to have you here. How are you today? I'm doing well. Great to be with you. Super. Hey, before we get into the election, can you just tell us where you grew up and when did studying law come into focus for you? So I grew up in New York and moved to California in the middle of high school. Okay. And I was studying as an undergraduate at UC Berkeley, and I was focused on Middle Eastern politics. I went to UCLA to pursue a PhD in political science focused on Middle Eastern politics. And uh, yeah. after a few years, I realized that was not for me. And so I figured I'd try law school. I thought I'd drop out of one uh, program or the other and ended up combining the two and ended up writing a dissertation on issues uh, related to law and politics. And uh, one of the courses I took in law school was a course on election law taught by a professor named Dan Lowenstein. And Dan is now a co-author because uh, I came on to the, the casebook with him. And 
Dan has since retired from the election law fields, and now there are a few other authors on that casebook, and, and the field has really blossomed. But at the time that Dan offered the course, it was one of only a handful of such courses in the United States. And now, ever since the Bush versus Gore and the disputed 2000 election, the field has really taken off. And of course, there's a lot of interest in this around every election, but this election in particular. Everybody seems to be saying that. Well, very interesting. So you studied just briefly about Middle East policy. There has been movement this week with several Middle Eastern countries, Arab countries, now making peace, it appears, with Israel. Have you been watching that at all or busy with other things? No, I've been between trying to write a book on the problem of social media and democracy and trying to deal every day with issues related to the election. I don't have a lot of time to delve into Middle Eastern politics anymore. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's a full-time job. So where do you start? I will say that I've been very concerned personally with the upcoming election that the country is so polarized and the president is very contentious about our election process, which is unheard of. I'm a pretty old guy. I've never heard a president talk about an election like this. And then actually, as I started doing research on you, then I started getting more scared (laughs) just in terms of the volatility of the situation. What are your thoughts? Well, I wrote a book in February called Election Meltdown because I was trying to explain why American confidence in the fairness and legitimacy of the election process has been going down. And since that book came out in February, we, of course, been hit with the pandemic as well as the social unrest created by the Black Lives Matter movement and the reaction to the murder of George Floyd, the problems of systemic racism in the United States. All of this combined, I think, has created a very volatile situation, including the president's reaction of sending federal troops in Washington, D.C. and in Portland. Uh, So all of these things are a pretty volatile mix. You add to that the president and others, including the attorney general, making unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud, the president claiming that if he loses the election, it has to be rigged. All of these things are very troubling for someone who is concerned that we're going to have a successful election. And you add on top of that, because of the pandemic, so much of our voting is moving to mail-in balloting which takes longer to count. Mm -hmm. And it could lead to a situation where we don't have a winner known on election night or even a day or two after election night. And that could be a very volatile period, especially if Trump, say, is ahead because he's ahead in in, in person voting in some uh, swing states and ultimately is not declared the winner by election authorities. So there are lots of reasons to be concerned about the upcoming few months. Yeah. Have you been sensitive to our Orange County voting situation, or are you more at a national level looking down? Well, I do focus nationally, but the fact is that we don't conduct a single election for president. We conduct something like 10,000 different elections for president Mm -hmm. because our election system, unlike other advanced democracies, is hyper-decentralized. So power is not even at the state level. Much of it is at the county level. Fortunately, in Orange County, Neil Kelly, the person in charge, the Registrar of Elections in charge of uh, elections in Orange County has a stellar reputation, I think is very transparent, is very professional. We'd be in a pretty good shape as a country if all 
local election officials were like him. So I'm much less concerned other than the access issues and issues related to people being inadvertently disenfranchised if they vote by mail and make mistakes. I'm not as concerned about voting in Orange County as I am generally in different parts of the country. Right. I was just checking with the Orange County Registrar of Voters Office today, and they said that mail-in ballots will be mailed to every registered voter between October 5th and October 9th, and then you'll be able to vote by mail then. But there'll be other ways to vote also. In fact, their website is ocvote.com, which uh, has a lot of good information. Well, I know that you put together a seminar at UCI Law with a lot of really knowledgeable people about the election and that you came up with 14 important points of having a successful election. Were any of those able to be used or not? So I did convene a conference called Can American Democracy Survive the 2020 Elections? And that conference was a public conference. You can find on the UCI Law website videos of the conference panels. After that, and it was one of the last conferences that the law school was able to do before the pandemic hit. Hmm. After that conference, some of the participants, not all of them, not the elected officials or the journalists, met privately as an ad hoc committee to try to hash out recommendations. And we did issue a report. This is Leaders in Law, Politics, Media, and Tech. We issued a report called Fair Elections During a Crisis. And so if listeners Google Fair Elections During a Crisis, it'll pull up our report. And we made a number of recommendations in those four areas, law, politics, media, and tech. Some of those recommendations have been followed. One message that I think is super important that has started to get through, and which I briefly mentioned earlier, was this idea that the election, if it's close, the message should be from decision desks and from media organizations that the race is simply too early to call. Mm -hmm. That when you have millions of people voting by mail, talking about 100% of precincts reporting, which refers typically only to in-person voting, uh, is likely to be misleading to voters. And so there needs to be an explanation as to why it takes longer to count absentee ballots. And, and that's because of all those anti-fraud provisions that are in place and all, all the checks we have to make sure that the people voting them are the people uh, who should be voting those ballots. And uh, so I think that that message in particular has gotten through. The other message that we pushed early, you know, all of a sudden there was this swing to everyone should vote by mail. And what we said in our report was there should be different safe paths to voting, including safe in-person voting. And even though everyone in California is going to be, everyone who's an active registered voter is going to be mailed a ballot that can be voted, there are still opportunities to vote in person. And we think it's important to have these different opportunities. One thing we flagged in the report, which came out in late April, which has only become more of a concern since then, is concern about the post office and whether the post office is going to be up to the task of delivering ballots to voters and returning those ballots. And so one of the things we're seeing now is fights over drop boxes and other means across the country of returning the ballots that have been completed. So some of the things that we said, people were very receptive to hearing them. The report got a lot of attention. Uh, some of the things like Congress providing adequate funding for the increased in-person and mail-in voting costs associated with trying to conduct an election during a pandemic ha has not panned out. Congress has only allocated about 10% of the amount of money we think is necessary to actually run a safe and fair election. 
Now, what that means is we're still going to run the election, but it's going to be sloppier because there are going to be areas that are starved of resources. And a sloppy election is not good when you have a really polarized society, people not trusting the system, and especially if you're on the losing side of the election, believing that it must be the product of some kind of chicanery on the other side. And so I think it's really important to have transparency and a fair election as a prerequisite to people believing that the election was conducted in a fair, legitimate way. Right. I'm hearing a lot about signature matching. Can you tell us what that is and do you think it's a problem? So when people vote in the polling place, their identity is confirmed in different ways. In California, it might simply be asking you for your address. In other places, there are voter ID requirements. When it comes to the question of voting by mail, one of the issues when it's taking place outside of the presence of voting officials is how do we know the person who's returning the ballot is the actual voter as opposed to the ballot being intercepted and stolen or something like that. And states have different ways of verifying identities. In some states, there has to be a witness. In some states, you have to put down the last four of your driver's license number, your social security number. In some states, you sign your ballot. Signature matching is often done in those states that have a lot of mail-in balloting, like California. It's often done at a first cut by a machine. A machine will compare signatures. Uh, what are they comparing it to? A signature that you've put on your voter registration form, or if you've registered, say, at the DMV and you signed one of those pin pads, it might be that signature. When a ballot is rejected, a ballot envelope, I should say, is rejected because of a purported signature mismatch by the computer, then there'll be a, an examination by a human being. And if it's found that it's not a match, uh, in California at least, you're given an opportunity to cure, so you'll be alerted. You'll be told by election officials, your ballot wasn't counted, and you have a chance to come in and prove that that's really you. I, I don't know about you, but my signature looks very different uh, if I signed it on a pin pad at a DMV. Mm -hmm. uh, or even what my signature looked like 10 years ago when I was doing a lot more writing as opposed to typing. But California has a pretty good system for alerting voters. Other states uh, that do this kind of signature matching don't have the fancy machines. They do it all by hand. Studies show that there's a fair amount of subjectivity involved in the process. And so there have been some lawsuits to try to make sure that voters who are found to have not have a matching signature are alerted to it and have a chance to fix it. In Pennsylvania, uh, after a lawsuit, they've abandoned using the signature as a means of uh, checking identity because of the arbitrary nature of how they were doing it in that state. So they're gonna have to rely on other methods of assuring people's identity. So all of this is to say that there are lots of discretionary choices that election officials make in terms of how they set their rules for conducting an election. Many of these are dictated by state law, sometimes they're dictated by local law, and sometimes the rules are changed because of uh, lawsuits that are filed in either state or federal court. And we're seeing a tremendous number of lawsuits. Hundreds of lawsuits have now been filed challenging various election rules in light of the pandemic. And so that's one of the things I'm following. And I follow this regularly on my election law blog, which your listeners can find at electionlawblog.org. Good. Thank you for that. And what about ballot harvesting? Can you tell us about that? Sure. That term sounds very nefarious. I wrote a recent article about this, and you can find it linked on the Election Law blog. Uh, this article appeared in the Los Angeles Lawyer magazine. 
And so the issue of ballot harvesting, or what we might call more neutrally third-party collection of ballots, is the following. Many people fill out their ballots that they've received in the mail, and they simply return their ballots to election officials by mail. Or they might drop it in a drop box, if the jurisdiction allows that, or they might bring it to a polling place on election day or a voting center, which is allowed in some states. But one other possibility is that you might give your ballot to someone else to hand in to election officials. That's what ballot harvesting or third-party collection of ballots is. Now, it might be as simple as a spouse gives the other spouse a ballot to stick in the mailbox. You call that ballot harvesting. You call that third-party collection. Some states have rules that either prevent you from doing that if you're not a family member. So you, you can't handle someone else's ballot. This is you know, to prevent someone from tampering with the ballot or they impose limitations, how many ballots can be collected. So in Colorado, where they conduct their elections almost all by mail, you're allowed uh, to collect up to 15 ballots from a stranger. In California, thanks to a change in the law that took place around 2017, I believe, there's unlimited collection of these ballots. And Democrats over the last few election cycles have really been pushing early voting, both in person and by mail early voting. And in 2018, they engaged in a really concerted effort to collect these ballots from people. And Republicans thought it was somehow fraudulent in and of itself. But there was no proof whatsoever in relation to elections in California that ballot harvesting was used to change ballots or destroy ballots. What we did see, however, was that collecting ballots was used illegally in North Carolina, where you're not even allowed to collect ballots if you're not a family member, and ballots were apparently destroyed or altered. There's a, currently a criminal trial. This was in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District, and there was such an issue with that they had to call a new election there. It was a crime there to both collect the ballots and to destroy the ballots. If it would have happened in California, the collection would not have been illegal, but the destruction uh, would be. But one of the reasons that some Republicans are skeptical of ballot harvesting in California is that we saw a number of races in 2018 in Southern California congressional races end with election night leads for Republicans only to see as additional ballots were counted over the following weeks, a shift towards Democrats winning their races. That included the race that Katie Porter ended up winning in the district that includes UC Irvine. Why was that? Was that because of fraud? Well, there was never any proof of fraud, never any even serious allegations of fraud. It turns out that Democrats vote later and their ballots therefore tend to be counted later. And therefore you get what social scientists have called the blue shift, ballots shifting from Republican leads to Democratic leads. This may be especially pronounced in the 2020 election because Trump's statements which are unsupported, that mail-in balloting is rife with fraud, seems to be convincing many of his supporters not to vote by mail. Yet many others, Democrats and others, are more interested in voting by mail. And so we may see a more pronounced shift where the earlier counted ballots, which are the in-person ballots, those that would be more likely to have more Trump voters than the later counted ballots. So that's one of the reasons why those early returns might not be indicative of the ultimate election results. Right. Did you say Katie Porter's election took weeks? It did take weeks, yeah. And in fact, I think seven of the elections took, seven congressional elections in Southern California took between one week and three weeks before we had enough results to, yeah. uh, to, to see that shift. 
Yeah, and I do. Because it takes a really long time to process these absentee ballots because so many people are voting by mail. And of course, we'll have many more people voting by mail this time. Right. So should we be ready to fasten our seatbelt that it could take weeks for the election to be decided? So if you're talking about the presidential election, remember that we vote using the electoral college system. And in the electoral college system, we care about particular states that might put a candidate over the top of getting at least 260 electoral college votes. I expect it's going to take weeks to count the votes in places like California, but California is going to be so lopsided for Biden that it's not going to matter. The question is going to be whether a place like Pennsylvania, which recently shifted to allowing anyone to vote by mail and has some history of problems with how they administer their elections, whether that state's going to be pivotal to the electoral college. I think Pennsylvania is going to be one of those states I'm really going to watch closely because if the election comes down to Pennsylvania, it might be a few weeks before we know the results of the election. And uh, as I said, I think that would be a very volatile period in the United States, should that happen. Hence, we'll probably be seeing you on CNN a lot. Well, if you're seeing me on CNN a lot, it means the country's in, after the election. It means right. the country is in, in, uh, uh, in some trouble. Yeah, gotcha. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I do a guest ID. For those of you who are joining us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest for this hour is UCI election expert and professor of law and political science, Rick Hassan. He's uh, very active nationally in all forms of media, and as I said, including CNN this year as their election law analyst. Have you been very involved with CNN in the past, Professor, or is this a new role for you? I just took this role on in early September. Of course, I've been on CNN before, but not as a hired contributor. But that means also that you won't be seeing me on TV on other networks during the election season. Gotcha. So did you apply for that or did you get the offer out of the blue? You must have been excited. Yes, I, I did not apply for it. I did not know they were looking for election law analysts. Uh, mm-hmm. So they're being proactive uh, this time around. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that they're going to have, and it's not just me, they've hired five people who are election law experts. I'm mm-hmm. glad they'll be able to rely on people who have background and specific expertise in this area because it is a kind of complex technical area. And it's very easy for people who are not specialists to make mistakes or not understand why, for example, votes might shift from one party to another, or what it means if a court puts an order out there just before an election takes place, things like that. Have you worked with Maine CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin? Do you anticipate working with him at all? I've been on panels with Jeff, and he's interviewed me a number of times. So we've been in contact a lot. We've been in contact for something he's working on now involving the election. Yeah, I expect. But, you know, it, CNN is kind of a behemoth. You know, they just have so many people that I don't even know that everyone there knows what everyone else is working on because there's a lot going on and it's just a very large enterprise. Right. Do you need to prepare at all for this role or no, your whole life has been preparing for it? Well, generally before I would go on, they would ask me if it's something I can talk about and I can't always talk about what reporters want me to talk about. Then I decline. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, typically they've been asking a lot of questions about mail-in balloting because the president's been making a a number of um, a number of comments uh, about that. And that's caused a lot of fact-checking and a lot of questions about, you know, the the entire process by which we're going to conduct the election. uh, Right. And I should say not just in November, people have already started voting. Uh, There are many places where ballots are already out. And so it is quite uh, 
big. Uh, yes, it's it's quite quite a big thing we're looking at. Right. At this point, is everything set? Is there anything that can be improved at this late date, or no? It's pretty much going to be the way it's going to be. Oh, I don't think so. There are a number of pending lawsuits. We still don't know, for example, in Pennsylvania, whether the Green Party is going to appear on the ballot, whether drop boxes are going to be allowed in Pennsylvania. There are still lots of cases over in the five states where people cannot vote by mail without an excuse, what those rules are going to be. There are many questions about how election day is going to be conducted. And I expect over the next two to three weeks, we're going to see a continued flurry of rulings from courts and appeals and potentially the United States Supreme Court getting involved in at least some of these cases. Mm. Uh, I saw on one of your webcasts that the makeup of the Supreme Court is interesting at this point, that it really is divided down party lines. Well, so we did see in one of the important early pandemic voting cases out of Wisconsin that the United States Supreme Court divided five to four with all of the conservative justices who have been appointed by Republican presidents voting one way, all the liberal justices appointed by Democratic presidents appearing the other way. It hasn't been that way completely in every vote that has come since. One of the things that we're seeing is that Chief Justice Roberts is somewhat in the middle on some of these cases. And what he seems to be showing is a lot of deference towards state rules in terms of how states think they need to not just run elections, but generally run their societies in the midst of a pandemic. So I think we're going to see a lot of deference from him. But there's no question before the pandemic and after the pandemic that when it comes to issues of voting, conservatives and liberals on the Supreme Court tend to view these issues through different lenses. How about the Electoral College? I believe I read someplace where you're in favor of the Electoral College. Is that true? Well, no, I'm not in favor of the Electoral College, but I I don't support what's come to be known as the National Popular Vote Movement to try to come up with an end run around the Electoral College. That is, this would be an agreement among states. And when you have states representing at least 270 Electoral College votes, they would agree that they would, all those states would cast their votes in line with whoever wins the popular vote in the United States. I like the idea behind it, but I think the implementation is very uh, worrisome. I worry, for example, about a state pulling out of the compact at the last minute, even though the compact reportedly doesn't allow that. And uh, I worry logistically about how it would work. And I would worry also that if states could game the system in terms of trying to up the number of people voting, you might see, for example, California decide to enfranchise 16-year-olds, and not necessarily because I think that's a good thing, but because it would run up California's margins. So Mm. I think if we're going to change the Electoral College, it has to come through a constitutional amendment. And I think a lot of the people who support the national popular vote see it as a kind of a way station towards doing that. Uh, But I think the cleaner way to do it, which would be very difficult now because the states that benefit from the Electoral College right now wouldn't want to give it up. But I do think that it's the kind of thing that over the long term, if we start seeing divergence between how the vote goes among uh, population and how the vote is in the Electoral College, that that really undermines the legitimacy of an election process, you know, where you have continued discrepancies between those two. Why should it be that way? And I think the answer that we're really a federation of states doesn't necessarily ring true for you know, a lot of people who think about when we go to vote for president. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about that, like federation of states, how would that 
change the electoral college significantly. It, it's it just it seems like another version of an electoral college. Is well, that... you people, states would still vote mm-hmm. their state's electoral college votes, but each state that is within this agreement would say, you know, even if let's say all of the Democrats, uh, uh, let's say let's say a majority of voters in California vote for the Democrat, but the national popular vote winner is a Republican, then California's electoral college votes would be cast for the Republican, even though the Democrat won in the state. Mm. And so that's how it would change things. You'd still have California voting its electoral college votes, so it still have the same number of votes, but the votes wouldn't necessarily reflect who Californians had picked to be the president, but instead who won the vote mm. nationally when we look across the board. Mm. Interesting. Well, Professor, we're getting toward the end of our time here. Boy, this seems like the next month or five weeks is going to be unbelievably busy, active. Are are you anticipating anything less than that? Oh, it's already crazy and it's only going to get crazier. I just hope that if not by the day after Election Day, but soon thereafter, we have a decisive winner of the presidential vote and uh, that winner is accepted by most people as the legitimate winner of the election. And it brings up what's uh, commonly known as the election administrator's prayer, which is, Lord, let this election not be close. Mm. Uh, a close election really reveals all the problems with how our elections uh, are conducted. A lot of problems which have not been solved and some of which have been exacerbated by the pandemic and uh, related issues. Right. Have you looked at the numbers at all? Is it not possible to tell at this point? Is it, is it going to be close or is it not going to be close? Well, the polls are not particularly close right now, but mm. I think, you know, we're still many days away from the election and polls are not always accurate. So right. I think we have to plan as though it's going to be close and we'll just have to see how things end up. Very good. Professor, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. You just heard my recent interview with UCI election law expert Rick Hassan. My next interview is with the top election official for Orange County. Here we go. Hey, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly. Orange County is the fifth largest voting jurisdiction in the United States, serving more than 1.6 million voters. Neil has been in this position since 2006, and it is the longest tenure of any Orange County registrar in the 123-year history of the county. He also has a stellar reputation as a registrar's registrar. Welcome, Neil Kelly. How are you today? Good, Kevin. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Well, please, with the election coming up, heading toward Tuesday, November 3rd, can you give us a sense of what will be the procedures for Orange County and how will we vote? Sure. So we moved to what's called the Voters' Choice Act in early 2020. And what that simply means is that voters can vote at any vote center located throughout Orange County. Every voter will be sent about through the mail starting on October the 5th. And that'll be happening statewide, not just in Orange County. And then you have options, and the options include uh, five days of in-person voting, which start on October 30th and run through Election Day, or my choice, and what I'm really trying to stress here is take the opportunity to vote at home. You can vote your official ballot, and you've got lots of options to drop it off. You can drop it in a secure drop box, you can drop it off at a vote center, or you can put it through the mail. So there's lots of options leading into Election Day. 
do you have a sense of when we will have votes tabulated? When will we get a result? Yeah, so California changed the rules under COVID-19 to allow election officials up and down the state to start processing ballots 30 days before election day, which means essentially the minute that I mail them out, first ballot we get back, we can start processing. So we'll be doing that all the way up to election day. And, and what that means is, and you know, we were able to do it before when it was just 10 days, but within 30 days, we will have every single ballot that we receive up through election morning ready to post those results on election night. So you're going to see a large chunk of ballots that will post that evening. What'll be left over will be the ballots that people cast on election day, meaning they either drop them off at a vote center or they mail them on election day. And it's really hard to forecast that volume, but I can tell you based on past history that about half the total ballots cast throughout the county are mailed on election day. So that's something that will take another probably, you know, seven to 10 days post-election day. Okay. So we shouldn't anticipate getting a result until seven to 10 days after the election? That's probably the best guess. And I will tell you this, that if contests are, you know, far enough apart, you're not going to see many changes, of course. But if you have close contests, that can certainly affect the results. And, you know, that's just a kind of a part of how California has been operating. And that is you have 30 days to count the votes as an election official, but voters have really changed their habits. And that is they kind of wait till the last minute, which is okay, but it extends the time. This will be the longest that we've had to wait. As I recall, we haven't had that situation. It is very unique this year with the pandemic. So voters should be prepared that they're going to have to be patient. Yeah, I think that's certainly a common theme. I doubled the capacity of our ability to process ballots right after the COVID-19 exploded in March. So we're in a really good position here in Orange County. And in fact, we might even be quicker than I'm telling you. But uh, up and down the state, you're going to see probably longer count times just because of the volume. Got you. What about verifying ballots? What's the procedure for that? So when a ballot comes in through the mail or through a Dropbox or dropped off at a vote center, the first thing that happens when it hits our door here is it goes through a series of checks and balances and a verification on the voter record, comparing the signature, comparing the data to that ballot before it's ever opened. And that process is done through a series of automated steps, but there's also human beings involved, meaning humans are checking the voter record and comparing that data to the ballot. Once it is approved for opening, then it goes through the process of preparation for scanning, and then we scan that ballot and collect the data. I will tell you that on average, a ballot that hits our door will take about 48 hours to transit through the system. And that's good because you have a number of checks and balances on ballots cast that way, whether dropped off or through the mail, that simply don't exist the same as in-person voting. What's the range you anticipate rejected ballots? Is that something that you can quantify or do you have a normal range for that? Yeah. If you look at past elections recently, and we've had volume, you know, as high as 800, 900,000 ballots cast, just as recently as the March primary and total rejected ballots out of that entire group is in the thousands. In other words, less than 5,000. But keep in mind, part of the reason for that is that California changed the law a few years ago, allowing voters to correct errors or to prove by signing an affidavit that they are who they say they are. 
And that didn't exist a few years ago. So rejection rates have come down in California because of that change in the law. If we, for instance, reject a ballot because the signature doesn't match, we're going to send a letter to the voter, giving the voter an opportunity to cure that issue. And that cure can take place all the way through just a few days before we certify the election. Mm -hmm. And that'll be a new procedure that hasn't been done before? Well, we've been doing that since 2018. That's when the law changed. But I think certainly now with COVID and with potential postal delays that have, you know, people have been talking about, that'll give voters that extra time to cure the issue. I think the number one reason that we reject ballots is because people forget to sign the envelope, which is unfortunate. Gotcha. What about the post office issue? Boy, that's been a hot topic. Are you working with the post office? What's that situation? As you can imagine, you know, in Orange County, we're a high volume mailer. Just because of that, number one, we have a good relationship with the post office. But number two, and more importantly, I've got a really good relationship with the senior leadership here in Orange County because we operate with election mail. And I have developed relationships with DC officials and senior leadership in the post office. And, you know, we've had a series of meetings just a few days ago. In fact, I was meeting with the postmaster here in Orange County. And I feel really confident in where we're at. That doesn't mean we're not going to be monitoring the data though, right? Trust but verify. And we're going to be looking at that data on a daily basis when we start doing our mailing. So yes, we have a good relationship with them. And B, I think we have a really good plan in place, which includes the monitoring of data on a daily basis. Do you feel like everything's in place? Are things still being developed or no, we're ready to go now? Yeah. All the materials are developed, right? That means printed, you know, packaged, ready to go. We're still inserting ballots, which will take us all the way through just before October the 5th. But for the most part, everything's ready to pull the trigger, um, which means that the next steps for us is to start delivering these items through the mail. Today, we started a $3 million outreach campaign to Orange County voters. You're going to see hopefully lots of those messages throughout your day leading up to election day, just telling people about their options. So everything's in motion and everything is on track. Very good. Now for the national level, can you give us some sense of, I think people are holding their breath for some of these states that are going to be close and what that's going to look like. Can you give us your best professional judgment about that? Yeah, when you look at some of the battleground states, many of those states have operated as essentially in-person voting states only for the last decades. And because of COVID, here was this quick ramp up to allow people to vote absentee. Some states still aren't allowing it, but the states that have opened that up, you know, that's a different dynamic. And I think potentially what you're going to see is very high turnout in states with vote-by-mail ballots that have just not had a system in place to deal with that. Now, I'm hopeful that things will work out because a lot of these states are using vendors. They're not just relying on expanding their own operation. And so you have some very qualified vendors in that mix. But that being said, if we do see the kind of turnout on absentee and vote-by-mail that polls indicate, you could have extended count times. And where that really comes into play is when you have very close contests. If you don't have close contests, people aren't paying attention to that post-election counting. <laughs> you know, right. that's still going on, but you know, right. people aren't paying attention. But at any rate, I think that we're going to see some extended races around the country that may be different from years past. Mm-hmm. And what kind of timeline, what's the longest 
timeline that you you could foresee a couple of weeks or or more yeah i mean i i think you're probably because most states have requirements to have the ballots counted well hawaii for instance has to have it done in three days mm. california's 30 days california's one of the longest so i think you're talking about probably a 30-day period the states have to have votes forwarded to congress for the president in december and so that's a hard deadline that's not going to shift unless there was court intervention so I think in answer to your question, we're looking at about 30 days. Wow. Potentially. Potentially. Right. Who is in charge nationally for the election? Is it Congress? Well, no. So the Constitution, that's a great question. The Constitution was designed to put the requirement for conducting elections on the states. And, you know, the federal government has really no role in that for the purposes of election administration. And that, in turn, the states then push that down to the local jurisdictions at the county level. But the votes for president, the electors, have to be delivered to Congress, and, and that's also baked into the Constitution. But in answer to your question, the responsibility for conducting elections relies with the states. Hmm. In terms of the pandemic, the 1918 pandemic, was there any election surrounding that pandemic, or there wasn't really any experience with this then? You know, I've read a little bit about that, but Rick Haas would be a great person to ask that question. Uh, <laughs> I would defer to Rick on that one. Okay, very good. Sir, thank you very much. You and your team have your work cut out for you. We wish you all the best. I appreciate that very much, Kevin. It's been great joining you. Thank you very much to Orange County Registrar of Voters, Neil Kelly, for giving us all the current information on the upcoming presidential election set for Tuesday, November 3rd. Look for your election ballot which will be coming in the mail in early to mid-October. Much thanks also goes to UCI election law professor Rick Hassan for his academic insights into election 2020. Don't forget to vote by Tuesday, November 3rd. For more information, go to ocvote.com and also Professor Hassan's newsfeed at electionlawblog.org. The bottom line, it is everyone's responsibility to vote. Make it happen. If you'd like to contact me, I can always be reached at kboss at KUCI.org. And coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, looking at important business issues facing today's small business owners. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 Every day and eaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Happy trails. So long, everybody.